Welcome to the MomQ Podcast, where we provide you with the godly intelligence and biblical resources to find peace, hope, and joy on your motherhood journey. I'm Candace Nasser, the founder of MomQ, a community of moms building healthy families. I hope you will be inspired and encouraged as we talk to moms of all ages about how God is using their unique gifts and calling to build His kingdom. So um, I read the funniest meme, and I had to share it because it goes really well with the topic for today, what do I do when I mess up? It is a picture of a husband and wife sitting in the car, and the wife's kind of going, mm-hmm. And the dialogue is, I already said I'm sorry in my head. If he didn't hear that, that's on him. <laughs> and I thought that was really funny because it reminds me of someone I know. So anyway, well, um, on to a true story, um, a real story with truth. Uh, a lot of you have heard, a lot of you in here have heard me tell stories uh, about my daughter, Lily, who's 22. If you've been in my small group, we probably, yes, you're, you just have like Lily saga every week is a different story. She's 22. She's a senior at OU. Um, I still have ladies Someone just asked me recently, um, who, who were in my small group like a year and a half ago, going, hey, what's the update on Lily? Is she still dating that guy? What's his name? Well, his name is Justin, and they are dating. They took a 60-day uh, break. Um, so in an effort to explain the story that I want to tell you, I have to tell you that Lily is not a sharer. She's not a daughter that calls mom and wants to tell her everything. I am a sharer. In fact, I would consider myself to be a little bit of an oversharer. Uh, well, during the breakup, she would not tell me anything. <laughs> I didn't even really know why it happened. I didn't know how she was doing. I didn't know how he was doing. I didn't know if they were talking like, Ever, or if they had like some plan to meet back up, I knew nothing. And I'm laughing because there's a lot of people in here, friends of mine, who were praying for me because I was really, really struggling with this. Um, I tried so hard not to let it bother me. Unfortunately, um, oh, and with her, I always put on a brave face a supportive face, an accepting, full of love, until I didn't. Yeah. Well, unbeknownst to her, as the days and weeks went by, I was letting hurt, I was letting anger, I was letting resentment, I was also letting, that's not fair, that that girl calls her mom every day, and Lily hasn't called me in three weeks. That's not fair. So in a rash moment, I sent her a mean text, directly putting down her character. No response. Radio silence. 48 hours later, I called to apologize. And this was her response. Mom, have you realized that this is a sin pattern of yours? 
When you don't get your way, you pop off and you say something mean and then later apologize. That hurts me and it makes it hard for me to want to have a relationship with you. This just happened like a few weeks ago. That was hard. That was really, really hard. The, the problem was I knew this was a sin problem of mine. I just, I will say, in my defense, I never just do it, you know, out of the blue. There's just always a lot behind, you know, anyway. <laughs> uh, just, uh, oh, yeah, I'm justifying what I, you're exactly right. So <laughs> I knew it was a sin problem of mine. I just didn't realize that it was quite obvious enough that my daughter could directly pinpoint what it was and let me know how it was directly and negatively affecting her. That was a hard pill to swallow. I knew that I was at the point now where I had to, to just, I needed to move past, you know, that I'm just never going to do that again. I, I, I just, it's not going to happen. From now on, I'm going to do this, and I just can never do that again. Well, I actually needed to deal with this sin head on and in a way that would create true change. Well, as God would have it, of course, I happen to be, oop, I happen to be teaching this lesson on what do I do when I mess up. And so I've spent the last three weeks reading and studying and researching um, what God says in his word about the subject of messing up, and he's been kind enough to share with me a few things. You see, what's going on here is going to affect greatly what's going on out here. All that resentment and bitterness and hurt that I was just holding in and... Um, Things like that are going to greatly affect our relationships with the people that we love most in this world. Our husbands, our children, our family members, our friends. We know this, yet I would venture to guess that there are some sins that we all, that we each have that we keep repeating over and over and over again. And each time we're like, ugh. Again, Julie? What's it going to take for me to finally stop this? Well, as I researched and studied and read countless scripture to get ready for this lesson, one particular passage really stood out to me, and it's 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Um, so, listen hard, this is a tough sentence. Chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians is Paul's response to the Corinthians' reaction to his rebuke. Paul had written them and said, you guys have very ungodly behavior. And this was his, then they responded, this is Paul writing uh, to them again. This is what it says, I am not sorry now if my letter made you sad. I know it made you sad, but it was only for a while. I'm happy now. It's not because you were hurt by my letter, but because it turned you from your sin to God. God used it, and you were not hurt by what we did. The sorrow that God uses makes people sorry for their sin and leads them to turn from their sin so they can be saved 
from the punishment of sin. We should be happy for that kind of sorrow, but the sorrow of this world brings death. Okay, well, based on that scripture, the big idea for this lesson is this. When we mess up, we should respond with godly sorrow, then confess, repent, and turn in a new direction. There is no regret for that kind of sorrow. So from the scripture that I just read, you can see, and I, that's on y'all's uh, sheets, we see that there are two types of sorrows, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. So I kind of want to dissect them both. Godly sorrow is connected to both a regret for sin and a desire to turn away from it. Is that a slide? Thank you. I can never get this right. Godly sorrow leads us away from sin and results in salvation. The word salvation here is referring to growing more and more like Christ every day. And that's what we want. That is sanctification, growing more and more like Christ. Philippians 2.12 says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But having godly sorrow, this is me now, continuing to humbly come before the Lord and recognize our sin is vital to our Christian growth. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, is a temporary reaction to bad behavior. It may be a really strong feeling, but it usually comes more from embarrassment or fear than a true awareness of our sin. Worldly sorrow also has the tendency to fade before any real change happens, thus leading the person right back into the bad habits. When Lily pointed out my sinful behavior, that really hurt. Ouch. I was hurt, a little embarrassed, definitely mad, but now I had a choice how to see my sin. How it affected me because of her reaction or to see the sin through God's eyes and make it right. So there are three things that are important to remember about godly sorrow. There you go. Godly sorrow begins with a heartfelt conviction that we have offended God by our sin. It's tough to hear. I think we as Christians, and I say this because I know it's true for me, we have a tendency sometimes to gloss over our sins and to not recognize them to be as detrimental as they can be. I think sometimes, I think I give myself too much grace 
and rest a little too much in the truth that in Christ I am already forgiven. That our sins do not ultimately count against us. That is truth. But we forget, I forget, that my sin grieves God. They offend him. Our sins, the things that we shouldn't watch but do, the things that we shouldn't think but we let ourselves and then kind of continue to feed, the things we shouldn't say, whether that be language or a nasty, nasty words towards or about someone else, but we say it anyway. The times we have been so patient for four hours with our kids. But our five comes around, and well, we have just had it. And we let ourselves lose it, and we find ourselves yelling and screaming. And how about the fact that Lily should have shared everything with me? I mean, I gave her birth. I raised her. I bathed her. I gave, her, I gave life to her. She owes me. But these things are wrong. Not to be justified or glossed over. They are sin. And sin can be detrimental to, our, to ourselves and to our families. Sin is so ugly that God had to send his son to die a brutal death to redeem us from it. In the Old Testament, King David, who is called a man after God's own heart... He, said, he admitted his sinfulness. He admitted his sinfulness over and over again and described the distress that he felt because of it. Now, you can see those. You see that in so many of the Psalms. In every case, he sought grace and healing from the Lord. So here are a few things that David said in reference to his sin. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me. Lord, my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Another one in reference to his sin. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And one more, I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Guys, David, we all know David had really messed up. Murder, you know, affair, adultery, all that kind of stuff really messed up. And he recognized, though, the effect that that was having on his relationship with God, and it grieved him. One of the most powerful examples of this type of sorrow comes from the gospel account of Peter after the arrest of Jesus. Um, you know, as they were waiting in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made a prediction to Peter that Peter would later deny even knowing him. When it came true the next morning, 
Peter was overcome with remorse. Scripture says, immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. He was overcome with agony and grief that he had hurt his friend and his savior. True godly sorrow is more concerned with the pain of sin, that sin it's between you and God and that it's hurt others than any consequence to ourself. The, uh, Paul and the other apostles taught that though godly sorrow is painful, it brings about positive change because it brings us to the feet of Jesus. He knew, Paul knew, and we know that he knew firsthand the blessings that come when a person is brought down low and our sins can bring us down low and then lift it up, and then be lifted up by the Lord. The second thing that godly sorrow requires is self-examination. You're doing, okay, that's great. So it's important, hear me now. Self-examination is very different than self-condemnation, where you sit in your shame and your regret and you sin and you can't and your sin and you can't move past it. In Colossians 3, 5 through 12, Paul talks about things that we need to get rid of in order to, as he says, know our creator and become more like him. Some of these things he listed were evil desires, lust, greed, slander, rage, filthy language. Based on other scripture in the Bible, I would add things like worry, judging, criticizing out loud or in our heads, gossip. What's important is that we take inventory of what's in our hearts before we make any decisions or take any action. When I got angry with Lily, I could list a number of things that took up real estate in my head, and then it came out. Ugh. It's also important, this is very important, to get the opinion of those around you that love you, that you love and trust. You know, the sweetest thing about Lily doing that was, I know she loved me. She has a very strong relationship with the, war, with the Lord, and she did not yell back at me. She did not say mean things back to me. Um, she loved me enough to confront me and say, Mom, you messed up. In 2 Corinthians, the, the verse that we have at the top of the sheet, you see that the Corinthian church's people's reaction their response to being rebuked was to confess, to own up to their mistakes, to take responsibility for them and actively change their behavior. I wonder if that's always what, what I do when I'm being rebuked. They could do this because they knew it was coming from a place of love and of a genuine desire that Paul had for them to grow in their relationship with Christ. 
the third thing that we need to know about godly sorrow is that it leads to repentance. I learned so much about this in the last three weeks. It's incredible. This is where we make the choice to stop where we are walking in the flesh, turn around, and walk in the spirit. This sounds a little bleak, sounds a little negative, but it's not. It speaks to the victory that we have in Christ. Because of Jesus, we can repent. We can, with the Holy Spirit in our hearts, turn and walk in a new direction. Guys, Christians, uh, see, the only way a person can make progress in the Christian life is through daily, active repentance. That's something I hadn't been thinking of. I was just kind of going along on my days, not recognizing where I needed to be going with the things that I, that I wasn't doing well. Um, repentance, so as I have said, it begins with an intellectual recognition and confession of sin, but it also involves the heart. There is an emotional component that recognizes we turned our backs on Jesus and we went our own way. Psalm 51, David says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. It's in that brokenness where we have turned back to God. It's in choosing to go to the Lord where we then find the strength to make lasting changes. I knew Lily was right. I had to understand the root of my anger, lift it to God, and ask him to, ask him to remove it from my heart. It's also one of the most important things that you can teach your kids. They need to know, first and foremost, we mess up. We mess up a lot. It's okay to let them know that, but we want them to see that we have a desire in our hearts to be right with Jesus, that we go before God in humility, telling him what we've done wrong, asking for forgiveness, and making different choices, and they need to be actively involved in this process with you and them as well. Now we need to dip our toes very briefly into worldly sorrow. Just to give you an idea of what it is. The chief characteristic of worldly sorrow is that it is self-centered. It focuses on the consequences rather than the offense. I'm so hurt. People think so bad about me now. I can't believe I did this. I will never forgive myself. An important part a point here, though, is that feeling the emotions from the consequences of sin is normal. It's normal to feel the pain of a fractured relationship due to lost tempers. We know that. It's normal to feel embarrassment when we get caught or called out. What's crucial here is where we land. 
Do we sit in self-pity or the emotions of defeat? Or do we recognize that what's more important is getting right with God and repenting? I want to compare um, Peter's response to his sin to Judas. Judas had betrayed Jesus by telling the Roman soldiers where Jesus would be at a certain time. Jesus was betrayed by both Peter and Judas. When they both recognized what they had done, they were both filled with sorrow, but their responses were very different. Peter recognized what he had done and immediately ran, it said. He ran to find Jesus to say, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. He wanted to make it right with Jesus. Judas, as we know, he hanged himself. And the words that are used for sorrow that surround him what, uh, explain that he was more sorry for himself. Those, that's the word used for the sorrow for Judas. Very different responses. Okay, next one. Focusing. This is a big sentence. Important sentence. Focusing more on the consequences of sin than humbling ourselves before God and making it right with him can lead to two very different challenges in life. That those, those are self-righteousness and shame. So those two things keep us in bondage. Those are huge things that can keep you in bondage. bondage. Bondage is anything that hinders us from the benefits of knowing God. And we need to break free of these things for our families, for our marriages, for our relationships. So I hate to dwell on me, keep going back to me, but truth be told, I was acting in a self-righteous way, believing that Lily owed me an explanation because of who I was. I was wrong to expect her to give me a play-by-play of what was going on in her life. She doesn't owe that to me. She's 22, and she has her own life. But having the expectation that she owed me that and getting angry when she didn't meet my expectation that made me mad, that I was, you know, it made me mad. I was hurt. It was hard. It's so easy to slip into self-righteousness in times like that, to think maybe we're better than other people or that people just need our help to remind them of that. We turn a blind eye sometimes to our own errors and justify the heck out of our actions while maybe at the same time condemning other people who are doing the same thing. We might even be self-righteous without realizing it because that's not something that you see in the mirror. The problem with self-righteousness is self. So the other thing that can come from sin, not being brought to God, is shame. I honestly, before this, had never given a whole lot of thought to shame. But after reading this, 
There is an epidemic of shame in the world today. And this, shame is one of the biggest playing factors on the worsening of mental health issues of today. I decided I needed to study about it. So I came up with six things. There's a lot out there. I came up with six things of the problem and then the truth that I wanted to share with you guys. Number one, shame is different than guilt. Shame is the painful emotion caused by an awareness when you realize you've failed or you've had inappropriate behavior that results in the paralyzing belief that you're worthless, that you're of no value to God, that you're unacceptable and deserving of rejection. Okay, I have to say, I have even heard people say this before, and I was just, I just kind of let it go, but I very much saw myself in that. I say those things to myself sometimes. Guilt is the objective reality of being liable to punishment because of something we've done. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Guilt, when we mess up, is a good and godly and healthy thing to have. Shame is not. Shame is from the enemy, and it opens the door for the enemy to come in and wreak havoc on the inside, you know, in our minds and hearts. And I say this, but really, really think about this and take this to heart. I did not realize how damaging this can be. But Romans 8.1 says this, this truth, it's another, Annie told us like three or four verses to memorize last week. This is a big one if you have those feelings. Romans 8.1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. No. And you have to believe that. You have to trust in that. Number two, people enslaved to shame, see if you hear yourself in this at all, are constantly apologizing to others for who they are. They, they feel small, flawed, not good enough. They live under crippling fear of never measuring up, never pleasing those that they love and respect the most. They have a tendency to hide. They have a tendency to hide, kind of turn away. Let's see. They live terrified. Guys, I, I related with this. They live terrified that their true self will be seen and known and rejected. The truth is, here's the truth that we have to hold on to. We have an audience of one. There is one person whose opinion really, really matters. Number three, shame can arise from a past sin that haunts us. 
do you believe what scripture says that your worst sin has been separated from you as far as the east is from the west? I'm sorry. I, I, I have to get that back, back to you on that. <laughs> For those who take refuge in Christ, this is the truth about even your most shameful sin. Hear that. It is no longer part of you. Other people may remember. You may remember. You probably will remember. We will still have the consequences for the sin. But for those in Christ, your sin is nailed to the cross and no longer has power over you. The verse for us for this is Philippians 3.13, and it says, Truth, forgetting what is behind you and pressing on toward what is ahead. Four, shame says, if you really knew me, you wouldn't want to be in a relationship with me. That's a big one. What happens here is if we don't feel lovable for who we are, we put up, knowingly or unknowingly, a barrier against being loved by God or other people. This looks like doubt. It can say, that may be true for others, but it's not true for me. That's a lie. That is a lie. We need to speak truth to our hearts when we feel shame. Number five, shame says, no way I will be forgiven again for the mistake that I've made a million times before. That's a lie. Uh, last week, I think, um, Amy and I were talking about shame, and she was just telling me that kind of when she was going through some things that dealt with shame, she went for an entire year listening to worship music. And that every time she turned it off, her mind would wander right back to where it did not need to go. So she kept that, am I saying it right? She kept that music going, and it went on. It took a year, and she faithfully listened to it to keep her mind in the right place. I love that. I love that. I've been doing that. Number six, lastly, shame disappears in community. Community not devices. Shame wants to stay private. It's a side of us that we don't want other people to see because, well, we're ashamed. But it's the side that, if kept hidden and private, is the most devastating to us, emotionally, spiritually, and sometimes even physically. The enemy says time and time again, don't bring that out. Nobody needs to know that's there. Just keep it in the dark. But that is the opposite of what the gospel tells us about light and its purpose and power. People change by letting God and others know you. 
Shame grows when we don't talk about it. I have a group of, there's three of us, it's a friend, and we call ourselves the level five ladies because we literally, we go level five with each other. And we've been doing that for three years now. And it's incredible. I encourage you to get level five ladies in your life. So to recap what we've talked about, we talk about we all mess up, sin's a big deal, real consequences, godly sorrow leads to confession and repentance and life. Abundant life. Um, Worldly sorrow, which worries about the consequences, leads to self-righteousness and shame. So we know this world is hard. How How many times in the last month have you said, life is so hard? Man, life is hard. This world is hard. (laughs) I find myself saying that once a week. Um, But hear this. Hear the truth. No matter what you've done, who you've hurt or disappointed, Jesus is, I love this word, he is eager to forgive you. He is eager. Not only that, but then he wants to meet with you and help you live out your purpose in life. There are so many people in the Bible, pillars that we, uh, re, you know, derive so much wisdom from um, David, Moses, Noah, Paul. All of those men sinned so greatly. They got right with God, and then God went on to do amazing things through them. So I want to leave you with three quick, short things to remember when you mess up. The first thing that we've got to remember is that when we sin, we need to turn to God and not away. That may seem like a simple statement, but honestly, the temptation when we've done something wrong will be very strong to turn away, to ignore it, maybe to shove it under the rug, try not to think about it again. It's very important that we face it. We might ruminate, obsess over it, or just go on like it didn't happen. We might rationalize it, and as I just did, justify why we did something or use negative self-talk. Guys, we have to be speaking truth to ourselves in whatever way you can do that. Um, This was one of the sweetest things that I read when I was studying. I, I just loved this sentence. It says, God's forgiveness, and hear this, this is for you. God's forgiveness does not depend in the slightest degree what you do or you do not do. It depends wholly, completely, and to the fullest degree on Jesus Christ. God is not surprised or intimidated by your sin. And in his great love for you, when we come to him with it, He wants to walk alongside you to get you out, get you moving in the different direction. He really will do this. For me, this looks like taking a position of humility and spending time with Jesus. One of the things that I have started doing in the last year is um, coming in prayer and leaving my hands like this. When I've done something wrong or I've let my mind go somewhere, I come with an attitude of surrender. I messed up. Lord, 
I repent. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Show me the way to go. And I try to sit there with my hands open to him, open for what he wants to tell me to do. The second thing that we need to remember to do is remember, remember you are who he says you are, and you are forgiven. All of your sins have been forgiven. You're, the slate is wiped clean through the blood of Christ. And Joyce Meyer writes, I liked this, whatever your sin or failure you need to confess it to God and then let it go. Stop punishing yourself for something that's in the past. Refuse to remember something God has chosen to forget. Love that. The third thing that we need to do is confess to God. That's an important part of it. Confess to God and then make amends if appropriate. First, confess to God. Talk through things with him. In your prayer time, talk to him. Ask him how to do it better next time. Then confess to the person. This is so important. These are hard conversations, and they are not fun, but they are so necessary in life. Take responsibility and ask for forgiveness. After that, it's in their hands. Don't ask them to apologize. That's not your place. It's a hard one to hold. And the story ended with Lily in that I apologized. I always I told y'all that before, that I asked Lily and God for forgiveness. But the Lord has been doing a great work in my heart. She literally texted me. We're going to see her this weekend. She texted me this morning and said, I am so excited to spend time with you, Mom, on Friday. So Friday, it's going to be a good day. <laughs> so as I close, a four... A, a few weeks ago, Amy shared four questions that she asks at the end of every day as a way of taking inventory of her heart and to see if there's anything that she needs to confess. She chose four that were personal to her, so I took the time to make some that were personal to me, things that I have trouble with the most that I want to check in at the end of the day with God and see how did I do How'd that work? The first, these are my four questions. Have I loved my husband well today and in a way that he can feel? I had to say that in front of him last night. <laughs> Number two, have I been a good steward of my time? Number three, have I kept my thoughts pure and positive away from judging and criticizing? Number four, have I believed that God and God alone is the source of all superior joy and satisfaction? I want to encourage you to make your own questions, to bring yourself into the posture of humility before the Lord every day. The greatest thing about him is that then he will meet you exactly where you are. He will take your hand he will love you perfectly, and he will show you which way to go. He will. He's a good God. And Amy is going to close us in prayer before we move on to small groups. All right. Did someone ask about um, 
as far as the east is from the west, but that was, it is from Psalm 103.12. And Father God, we just thank you so much that you love us, that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, and they are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. And Lord, you remember them no more. Father, thank you that you are the one that prompts us by your spirit to lead us into a place of repentance. Lord, as Julie has by the blood of the lamb and the word of this testimony, would you move us in our hearts to lean into you, to listen and say, Lord, prick our hearts, search our hearts, and tell us if there's anything displeasing to you that we can confess our sins and know that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that you desire relationship with us so much so. Father, as we just go into our groups, would you just lead us into authentic community where we can confess, where we can be just authentic with each other, and discuss and learn more about repentance, confession, and living a life that is righteous before you because it is the work of the cross that enables us to do so. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if so, please feel free to share it with others who might be interested. You can also give us feedback in the comment section, and we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions about anything you heard today, or would like to suggest topics for us to cover in the future, message us on Instagram and Facebook at MomQ512. We'll see you back here in just a couple of weeks.